Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I'm really excited for today's show. I hope you are. Aaron and Ben Napier are here from HGTV's hometown. We had a great talk. It's going to be fun. I'm guessing a lot of you are probably here just because of Aaron and Ben. So welcome. Thanks for coming. Let me tell you a little bit about this show if you're new here. I am a TV producer and director out of Boston, and my background is also in home improvement television. I worked at this old house for the last 15 years, uh, most recently as the producer and director of Ask This Old House, and I got laid off in March, right at sort of the beginning of all this coronavirus stuff, and I've been using this show now for a little over a month just to compare notes with other people in the TV and media business and just try to figure out sort of where everybody's at with this and what people's plans are moving forward because coronavirus and the quarantine, the shutdown has affected TV, film, radio, media in ways that we're all still trying to figure out. It's going to be a long time before all the dust settles on this. And Aaron and Ben have a have a perspective on that too. But I was excited to talk to Aaron and Ben because the impression that I get in watching Hometown is that they are very genuine, very loving people, and that they really care about a lot of the things that, that I care about and that I tried to make part of how we told stories at, at this old house in my time there. They really love old houses. They really love working with their hands, making things, seeing the satisfaction at the end of the day of of doing projects. And I got the sense in talking to them that their kind of on-screen persona where they always have their arms around each other and are kind of goofing on each other, my sense was that that's not put on, that they really just are a cute couple in love and... They're just fun people. And it's nice to be able to bond over sort of our our shared ethos, our shared belief about what's good in the world. And I got into this in my interview with Nick Offerman. And if, if you're new here, again, that's kind of the next one that's worth listening to because he touches on a lot of the same themes uh, that, that I touch on with Aaron and Ben of just sort of the, the value of hard work. And I hope that we're getting back to valuing that, I hope we're getting back to a place of valuing handcrafted things and just art, because so much of what we've been consuming for years has just been kind of mass produced and gets cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, there's just something nice about something that's built to last. And I feel like Aaron and Ben feel that way about housing. And I feel like they feel that way about marriage, frankly, too. They're, uh, they're building something to last. They're building a strong family. And I really enjoyed talking to them, too, because they were willing to be very honest with me and to talk about vulnerable things. We talk about their feelings about some of the racial issues that are happening in this country right now. We talk about faith in this conversation, and I talk about it with them. I'm not a person of faith. I grew up very Catholic. And now I'm not that and haven't been for the last 15 years, at least. But even though we come from different perspectives on that, they were willing to talk openly with me about their beliefs and were willing to listen about mine. And, and I really respected that. So anyways, I'm, I'm honored that Aaron and Ben were willing to talk to me so openly about, about so many issues, so many different things on their mind. And we could just we could geek out and have fun. So here's my interview with Aaron and Ben Napier. Hey, guys. Hi. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you? We're good. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm doing the best I can, I guess, right now. It's, uh, I don't know. How are, things, how are things looking in Mississippi, like quarantine-wise and COVID-wise and stuff? Oh, uh, it's business as usual. Yeah, it's. There was a there was a while where it was everything was shut down except for Lowe's and Walmart uh-huh. and grocery stores, and um, but now things have been slowly opening back up. Yeah, we we hesitated to open our store back up because it's such a pull for out of towners. Sure, 
and so we uh we kind of we waited a little longer than everybody else but we've got it back up and up and running and everybody's following precautions like everywhere you go yeah. earlier yeah. i stopped at a, a restaurant that used to be a self-serve kind of place and now it's when you walk in everybody's wearing a mask they spray your hands and then you can't even you can't even get to the food anymore Oh, and wow. then you tell them what you want, they fix your plate, cafeteria style. So it's, you know. So you went to Hobby Habits for lunch. I went to uh, Main Street Cafe. Okay. You in Boston? I'm outside Boston. Yeah, I'm in Massachusetts. I'm, I'm in like the suburbs of Boston up here. And it's, you know, we had a, an initial spike like real early. There was a, uh, there was like a healthcare conference uh, at one of the big hotels in Boston. And I think people from around the world and stuff were there. And it spread very early in that group and it was you know i don't know 1500 2000 attendees or whatever you know it was a big group of people all gathered together and so our state shut down pretty quickly and then it's been kind of slowly reopening but uh yeah it's interesting just sort of uh, you guys are, are ahead of us in terms of weather and stuff but up here it's just starting to get nice again and so people are starting to venture out and i feel like are just getting a little a little more careless <laughs> with the mask wearing and you know trying to get back to normal uh as quick as they can. So for the first six weeks, nobody was wearing masks and only Walmart, Lowe's and the grocery stores were open. Yeah. And they weren't taking any precautions, which as small business owners, we were all like pretty fired up about it. They're like, you're not even trying to control this. And yet we've all closed our businesses because of this. And then now everybody's wearing masks here and they're pretty everybody's pretty good about it yeah well you and remember I mean, at the I, beginning of this like they they didn't want you wearing masks right there was a whole issue of like mm-hmm. shortages of like you know the healthcare workers need them so don't don't even put anything on and then that kind yeah. of shift culturally too so just an interesting uh interesting thing i understand you guys have uh you've been doing some camping during this time too right we have been we haven't camping. <laughs> we don't know when or even if the like apparently a lot of the campgrounds stayed open, uh-huh. but they closed like the swimming pools, the playgrounds, the you know pavilions and stuff. Anything that was like a common area, and so we went, and it was great because it's what we've learned at campgrounds. It's like people are polite and they speak. Yeah, but they don't try to get up in your business, right? Because they want their privacy too. Right. Yeah, and so um, it's perfect. Yeah, it's been that's been the best way to social distance. Nice, and yeah, get out and and feel like you're getting away too. Does you you guys have an old airstream, right? Is that that's what you use for camping? We do. We we restored it over the winter, and it was a part of an episode that aired recently. And uh, so that was. It was really cool, and we were a little bit hesitant about that because it's kind of like, you know, saying, hey, look, this is our airstream. Right. You can look for it. Um, but they all look the same. Yeah, <laughs> They're all they silver all, on the outside. All yeah. of them are the same. So. Does it have, like, a shower and a, and a toilet and stuff? In? Like, that would oh, be my yeah. fear of going to it campgrounds is, like, using the public facilities and stuff. It is all the creature comfort. Nice. We have two air conditioners because, I mean, I'm a furnace, and we sleep <laughs> with it really cold. Yep. And, uh. So we have two air conditioners. We have a big shower. We have a, a nice sized toilet. Nice. Lots of counter space. Yeah. A big fridge. I mean, it's, it's not roughing it. Yeah, we are by <laughs> no means roughing it's it. Tight quarters, but yeah. we have everything we need. It's fun. Really, really fun. That sounds like an awesome way to to spend the quarantine. I'm curious too, just sort of. I feel like HGTV, I don't know what you're hearing from your fans and stuff, but I feel like it's just such comfort food right now that, like, so many people, they're probably tuning in more than ever, right? They are. It's been really incredible to see the messages we've gotten from all over the world, really, from people thanking us because it made them feel less alone. Yeah. And it made them feel hopeful and comforted. People really do say hometown is like the comfort food of television yeah which is a huge compliment to us as southerners that is the highest compliment i hope that our show is cornbread and mac and cheese and black eyed peas and black eyed peas and pot roast (laughs) for everyone who watches it it definitely, you know, I, I feel that way watching it. And like for me, I grew up in a in a small town. I'm from Ohio originally, but it was, you know, a town of like twenty thousand people. 
And uh, from what I've seen of Laurel, anyways, I haven't been through Laurel, but similar kind of downtown of just, uh, my town was probably the 1890s through like the 1920s. They built this beautiful downtown out of brick. And like, I still remember growing up, it was still vibrant. Like the first couple of years that I was, that I was like a little kid and we'd go down to like the drugstore and get uh, candy bars and things like that. And I don't know, there, there's a, there's a hunger for that right now, right? There's a kind of nostalgia that goes with those small towns. And it's maybe it's because I'm just thinking out loud here, but people don't don't live like that that much anymore, right? You guys have something special there in Laurel. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think for a long time, um, there was a generational thing that people didn't want other people in their business. Yep. Um, you know, they, they wanted people to keep their distance and they didn't want to be friendly and um, but there's some, some comfort to that. Like we, I tell this story a lot, but, uh, we were one time in North Carolina and one of my neighbors was calling me and I thought it was odd that he was calling me at seven in the morning. And then I realized that it was actually six in the morning in Laurel uh-huh. and I was like, oh shoot, something's wrong. And so I, I called him back and our dog was out and oh, wow. my brother at the time was in college and he was coming by and, you know taking on the property and taking care of my dogs and one of them had gotten out and nobody was home to know and so he uh they had they took care of it for us oh that's great and so you mean just little things like that that you know you don't really get if you don't know your neighbors and it's hard to know your neighbors in a big city yeah and i think there's a piece of it too that just sort of the way that houses were constructed you know, the last, like, if you go back to, you know, the early part of the 20th century, up through like the maybe 30s or 40s, where there's big front porches, there's sidewalks, there's a chance to sort of get out and socialize. And, you know, a lot of the newer houses, especially as you get out like into the suburbs and these kind of development homes, like it's a long driveway <laughs> that goes to a to to a garage. And you pull in your garage, you never have to, you never have to see anyone on the street. You know, there's, there's no reason yeah. to, to go out and visit with people. And yeah, just that, I don't know, that cultural the porches piece of it, became, right? Yeah. In the last, in the last 40 years, porches became decorative. They weren't, right. you know, part of the house. And that was the thing, you know, that like when our house was built, they didn't have air conditioning. And right. so you needed that shady spot where you could come in and cool off and, out saying, you know, have a breeze blow. And now people are, are starting to get back to building houses that way, but it's still not the same. It's, you know, houses now have air conditioning. They have all the modern conveniences, just like our, our airstream. Sure. Like we're not roughing it. We're not going out here and camping. And, and houses today, they don't need the porch, but people do. They need that uh, that connection, you know, from sitting out on the porch, seeing your neighbors walk by and waving to them. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's, that's something that people are yearning for and wanting to get back to. Yeah. And, and you touched on it a little bit there, Ben, but I'm, I'm just curious too, like for both of you thinking about old houses, what do you love about an old house? Why, why bother saving them? I guess. They, they're storytellers. And as Southerners, that's what we're good at is telling <laughs> stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the character, the creek, the, the patina of a wood floor that's a hundred mm. years old. You can't fake that. Yeah. You can't manufacture it. You can find old photos of it. The, the original family, the people who built that house, the original floor plans. There's just so much that changes over the decades that you get to see when you uncover and you open up walls or you bring down old wallpaper. You just get to see the decades and layers. And there's just a sterility about new houses that mm. doesn't interest us. Yeah. at all they are all kind of cookie cutter i guess in a way right yeah yeah no matter how no matter how unique they are they're just not very unique yeah. and with old houses even if you know you could walk through houses that like if you find a part of town that's got a bunch of you know factory houses or or factory worker houses and they're all you know these little cottages that are basically the same. Yeah. Even in those situations, when you walk through them, they're different. There are little things that, because they were hand built, things are just a little bit different, a little bit off. Um, you know, this window may be shifted over six inches, and that's all it is. It's different. Right. But you notice that, and I don't know. There's just 
they're just different from new houses. Yeah, there's something too, uh, Aaron. What you were just saying kind of strikes me of just sort of the layers of life that you know. When a yeah. house has been lived in for a hundred years, those houses may have all been built almost identical when they went in. But after people have lived in them for fifty or sixty years and renovated them and changed them and customized them, they all take on sort of a life of their own at that point. Yeah, yeah. I took a class when I was uh, I was thinking about getting a master's degree in history and I didn't finish it. Uh-huh. But uh, I took a class that was a, a social. The, the teacher that taught it, it was just like an entry level graduate school history course. But the teacher that taught it, his emphasis was in social history. Hmm. And his big thing was that when you look back over the years, the people who were in power were writing the history. And the only things that were making history were like big national history things. Yeah, wars or, and it, assassinations. Yeah, wars. And, yeah, right. Change of power and um, pandemics. Yeah. And, and so his he actually had a degree and uh, or his thesis was on restaurant history. So he'd been studying restaurants for the last, you know, going back to the late 1800s and how like nobody was writing the history of that. And so he was having to like, you know, go through newspapers and read about them there and and was compiling all this really fascinating stuff about the restaurant industry that, you know, who would have thought, you know, that that is history, but it actually is. And the same goes for these houses. Like that's the way people lived. And for some people, that's a more important history. Yeah. It's interesting too, just thinking about like the the history of restaurants for a second, like some of the, the knowledge you gain might even just be through, you know, finding an old menu or something. And like, you can't talk to the person that ran that restaurant or the cook that made those meals, but you get little clues about what that restaurant was like from reading that menu it's kind of the same with a house, right? That like you may not even know as, as you're tearing down a wall or, you know, peeling back wallpaper, you see, you know, Sally's name written on the wall in, in marker or something. And you have no idea who Sally is and, you know, what her last name was when that was written, but it gives you just a little peek into just how life was lived at various points throughout that history in a very personal way. Yeah. yeah. We did a house uh, that, the builder or one of the builders wrote the date in Laurel, Mississippi on one of the boards inside. Oh, wow. And it was really cool because, you know, we knew exactly what day that that board was put up or, you know, because somebody wrote it on there. Yeah. But then fast forward, uh, we only did a part of the house and the family, the owners did the upstairs later and they were uh, peeling off wallpaper and uncovered photos of donny osmond uh, <laughs> oh wow taped to the walls yeah and so it, or, you know, they were removing paneling and there were photos of donny osmond <laughs> taped to the walls and it's just like that contrast of this really beautiful handwriting that some you know craftsman wrote the date yeah. In 1904 or whenever, 1902. And then Donnie Osmond. And then, and then Donnie Osmond. <laughs> this this yeah. paneling was clearly the 70s. Yeah, it, it's funny, too, those little things. Like, we were, my house is 1910, and I was working in the attic one time and sort of found a couple of, of little mementos just, like, in the floorboards. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. What is this? And I showed my wife, and it was, like, this old, you know, yellowed, crinkled letter um, with, like, the stamp on it and everything in an envelope. And so we opened it up, and inside it was whatever kid had lived in this house was hiding this letter from his parents, and it was sent from, I think, like the middle school principal or the high school principal that, you know, like little Johnny is having a hard time focusing. He wants to misbehave in class. Please speak to him about his behavior. Like, you know, you you just expect to, like, the things that you're going to find are going to be like man lands on the moon, (laughs) and instead it's just, you know, this letter from you know, whenever, 1930 or 40, just some kid. And to me, those are the stories that are are way more interesting because I've heard about man landing on the moon and that's, you know, that's an amazing story. But now I want to know about little Johnny acting up in class and and what exactly was he doing? What did he grow up and become? Yeah, what did he become later? Yeah. And I haven't done that research. I should because I'm just realizing I have the name and everything. That uh, that would be a fun rabbit hole to go down someday. If only there was like you know like a three month span where you were you know <laughs> just... unemployed and everyone else was unemployed and 
sitting at home with the internet and nothing else to do, yeah. <laughs> this, this would have been the time for it. Um, I'm curious too, just been thinking about like your woodworking business and furniture making. What do you, what do you love about that? What is it that's, where do you find fulfillment, I guess, in just making something with your hands and working with your hands? So there's the, the ultimate like satisfaction for me is at the end of the day, whether I'm working on a car or building a piece of furniture and I can, at the end of the day, I can look at my progress and see what I like. It's, it's there in front of you. It's, it's not like a, a mental thing. It's something that you can actually touch is tangible. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people say that about, you know, anything they do with their hands, whether it's artwork or, you know, whatever. A lot of people feel that way. For me, um, it's about finding the balance in a piece. I'm not the world's best dovetail joiner. I'm not the world's best at making inlays. Like I'm, but I think that what I'm really good at is proportion. Proportion, mm. like you know, building a table that the legs match the top perfectly and everything yeah. fits. And you look at that scale. Scale, like it feels very like a natural piece. Like this thing just appeared. God created this piece this way. And it's, I don't know, I think that I'm... Well, if God created be perfect. That's right. It's, yeah. Well, the dovetail would be perfect. <laughs> Everything perfect. But that's like, for me, it's figuring that out. Like, okay, I have this top, this piece, this slab of wood that I'm going to build a table with. And I don't really have the equipment to shape it down the way I want to. And so I'm going to have to kind of work with it the way it is. Now, how do I build a base for it or how do I build a cabinet for it so that when I'm finished, it looks correct? Yeah. If that makes sense. There are a lot of people out there who are phenomenal builders and they build things that just don't like when you look at the finished product, it's like that top is way too small for those legs or that's a really chunky piece that you put on there that doesn't make sense. I don't think that I'm as good a builder as a lot of people out there, but I think that I'm, I'm very good at designing it. If yeah. that makes sense, and I'm trying not to sound braggadocious, but that's, that's what I like about it is seeing something and then and figuring out how to make it look right. Yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And just, yeah, that the importance, I guess, of proportion and scale and, it's not something you notice unless it's done wrong, you know, like and, and, unless it's wrong. Yeah. Exactly. And most people probably couldn't put their finger on it either. They're going to look at it and say, I don't like that table, but they're not going to say, you know, they, they used a, whatever, a one by board for the top instead of a five quarter board or, you know, what there's, there's something yeah. off about it, but they can't put their finger on it, but they just kind of know, but there is a satisfaction in just sort of, in just trying it and just, seeing oh, something through to completion and, and feeling like I did that, right? Yes, that is the ultimate, um, I think, for anybody who's doing it, whether it's a hobby or it's a career, is at the end of the day, you know, being able to see what you've done. Randy that works in my wood shop, he's a phenomenal woodworker, yeah. and um, it's a new thing for him. He's, he started working for me like a year and a half ago and has gotten really good. And I remember, like, those first times that he came up with something new and um you know was so proud of it and uh and then like for us to sell that and yeah. make money on it. once that happened like once you complete something and then someone else appreciates it i think you're hooked man and it's hard to get that out yeah that's that's an awesome feeling just knowing that that you're getting paid for something that, you know, you're, you're kind of doing it just for fun and just to figure it out. And then someone's yeah. like, that's, I want that in my house. How much do you want for it? Um, yeah. I, I want to ask too, there was, Aaron, I think I heard you say this before. I, I, I may be wrong, but uh, one of you had talked about sort of the resourcefulness that comes primarily from being Southern, you had said, but I feel like, and, and maybe this is something that you guys grew up with and just have sort of had all along, but I feel like in the last I don't know, five, 10 years as a country, we're starting to get back to that place. And and the context of the quote was sort of in, in not throwing things away and figuring out how to use sort of every scrap of lumber from, from a project or, you know, in cooking, using every part of the pig or, you know, that, that sort of mentality. Like, do you feel like yeah. culturally we're starting to, I, I guess it's really getting back to a place where probably our, you know, our grandparents used to be, right? I think that is something that's 
deeply Southern about the way we work and that separates our show from maybe a lot of other shows you see on HGTV. That is what Southerners do really well. Most of us come from modest means. Yep. You know, we, we are not the wealthiest state in the union. We're not, <laughs> that's not a bad thing necessarily though. It, it makes people resourceful. It, it's necessity is the mother of invention. It's what makes Southern cooking so great. Mm. Like that's what I think you probably read a quote where I was talking about uh, pork belly. Like you can find the most amazing meal of your life in the South and it might involve an ingredient like pork belly. Yeah. And it's just a part of the pig no one wanted, you know? And that's, that's what we do. We find pieces of homes or pieces of lumber that were unwanted, that were discarded, and we find a way to make it useful and beautiful. A couple of years ago, the governor declared that year to be the Mississippi's creative economy year, or it was going to be the year of the creative economy or something like that. And uh-huh. I remember uh, talking with him about it, and I said, you know, it's funny that this is like a new thing that people are talking about, and like even the creatives are talking about, you know, creative economy and, you know, what a great thing this, this resurgence. Cooking with local things and, and making from local things. That's right. what Mississippi always done. Like, that's not a... Because that's what was available. It was what was available. Like, um, I mean, there are entire classes at the University of Mississippi in the art school about folk art, about the, you know, the history of folk art and what it was and just, you know, painting on found materials and... And doing sculpture with sound materials, and, and it's just—I mean, it's what people did. My granny had a uh, a mailbox that was made out of a tractor wheel and a—or not a mailbox, but a mailbox holder, uh-huh. the pole. It was made out of a tractor wheel and a, a metal fence post and an old leather bank. And my <laughs> uncle was learning how to weld, and he figured out how to weld this thing. And it was this really cool thing. I remember. Yeah, it became a piece of art, yeah. a sculpture, and it was just trash laying around their farms. And then the grill that we had my whole life that I just thought was what grills were. I didn't know about, like, you know, Weber's or ceramic grills or right. anything. It was an 18-wheeler rim with a piece of pipe welded to the rim, sticking up, and then a big, massive piece of pipe welded to that. And then it had uh, exhaust pipes off the pickup truck for the, the vents. And that was what, like, that was what we grilled. I had a piece of expanded metal for the grill. And that was about that. Grilled chicken on it. That's awesome. I just thought that was what everybody had. Right. You know, growing up. And it was. I've a, never heard of this in my life. It's still it's in <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It looked good on the back there. Yeah, go and get it, man. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, that was, that's the way. Things were, and like this whole reclaimed wood furniture trend that is so hot and has been for a few years now, it's it's really... For us, it's about cost. Yeah, when I started my company, it was that, you know, people were saying they were throwing things away and I would pick it up. Yeah. And then I figured out, like, oh, shoot, this makes it more valuable. Right. Okay, I can tell this story and sell it more. And so... I built some trays one time and I used wood from an old shop that somebody was tearing out, literally saved it out of the trash. And, you know, if you say it that way, it's like, oh, that's, that's neat. But if you say, you know, this is from a shop that was one of the oldest structures in Laurel, it was, you know, early 1910s. Uh, and it once housed a jewelry shop as a secret uh, workshop. And you know, if you tell that story, then it's like, you know, oh shoot, this is fascinating. But it's 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 literally like Aaron said, it's a necessity thing that has always been so. And I don't think it's just the South. I think the South is known for it because it's there is so much. I don't want to say poverty, but reduced economy. Yeah. So that's a good word. <laughs> um, but I think that you know, I mean, like there are parts of Ohio, there are parts of you know, all across the Midwest where it's you have that same lifestyle. Less is more. Less means equals more creativity. Right. It's the thing. It's um. That's a real theme of our show. It also makes me think of the Dolly Parton song, "Coat of Many Colors." 
<laughs> it's a really sweet moment. I know it's so sad. Her mom makes her the coats from all these scraps and rags that she had, and then she thinks it's the most beautiful coat in the world that the kids at school make fun of her. But she tells them, "No, we're rich. I'm to have all the love in the world, and my mom made me this coat." Yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, and I feel like for so long, like people just we got caught up in kind of advertising and, and marketing and just feeling like you always had to have the newest, latest, greatest thing. And there is, there is that appreciation of going back to, you know, a coat made out of rags or a a piece of furniture made from the trash. And like you say, when you say it, like this is a thing we're throwing away. Yeah. No one really cares. But if you, if you tell the real story behind it and, and appreciate it too, that sort of, you know, that just, you can't get that tight of a wood grain on, on new wood, you know, they just, there's not yeah, old growth it, it trees. It does like not that. exist. Yeah. And that's the that's the real thing is like it's well not just the, the that side of the wood grain, the the fact that the, as the wood ages, like it takes on this natural color you that can't you fake cannot it. fake. Right. Um in our book, that's one thing that I talked about was that like I started figuring out that, you know, I may want something to look like, you know, a hundred year old reclaimed pine and I'll try and mix things to look like it. But it's just never going to. It's it's a natural thing that happens that you can't um, that you just can't change. Yeah. I mean, you can't recreate. Rather, it's got to be the authentic thing to to really give you that feeling. Uh, I, I want to yeah. talk. I want to talk about hometown for a minute too, and just sort of going back to the the quarantine and uh, you know sort of the shutdown. Like, where did that fall in sort of your production timeline? Like, were you guys did you have to shut down at all, or did this come kind of between seasons? It was perfectly timed. It was as if we meant to do it that way. But the show <laughs> wrapped on March 10th was our last oh, wow. day, and then the quarantine began March 15th. Yeah, so you really made it. So in. we even <laughs> had a little five-day window to get our affairs in order before it happened. Wow. Yeah, I had to go to Tupelo the day after we, we wrapped. And so I was able to, like, you know, go up there and run a bunch of errands in North Mississippi and I mean, of course, it was still, you know, you were still trying to be careful back then because it was... The day we wrapped was the day we heard Tom Hanks had COVID. Right. And that was like, for our film crew, we were just like... Whoa. This yeah. is Whoa, this is bad. Like, yeah. they shut down the movie he was working on. And then it was like, a, we were at the rap party when we were all reading about Tom Hanks. And everybody just started, like, trickling out of the party real fast. Right. <laughs> yeah, because... You know, I mean, I don't know about with y'all's crew on this old house, but with ours, it's all because we shoot in like, you know, six to eight month segments. And then there's a little bit of downtime. Everybody on our crew is, they're kind of nomadic. They'll go and work somewhere else sure. on their project. Yeah. And slowly but surely over the next two weeks after we wrapped, all of those projects have shut down. Yeah. And so. So our crew has been totally, our film crew was totally out of work through the whole thing, like everybody. Right. And uh, we all go back to work on June 29th. So okay. that was always the plan to begin June 29th. And we didn't change it. We're going to follow extreme precautions. Yeah. And you have to do it. The production does in order to get insurance. So everyone will be wearing masks except Ben and I when we're on camera. Wow. And... There's all kinds of we won't get to have crew lunches anymore, which was always our favorite part of the day. Yeah, yeah everybody, the production office, the uh, production. No, there's crowd the team crew. in the office, and then there's the team in the field, us who are filming, and we would all have lunch together. You know, twenty of us, thirty yeah. of us, and that was the best part of the day. Sure. And now yeah. we don't get to do it anymore. I'm so sad about crew lunches. So how's how's lunch um, going to work then? What is everyone just have to eat in their cars or? Yeah, we get a stipend. Um, and you can go home eat and come yeah, back. Or you can wow. go to a restaurant and go wherever, which it's it's sort of some of the guys on our crew are like, that seems more dangerous right. to let people just go out in the world and then bring it back. I love crew lunches is my favorite thing. I'm a very social guy. Sure. Uh, so this has been very hard for me <laughs> already. But I love, like, like Aaron said, our crew lunches. Because we, I mean, we're with our camera crew all day. You don't day. Get to know each other while sure. you're working. You're right. Working. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's the time for socializing. Are they, are, is your crew, are they like Mississippi based or, or do they come in and like, you know, stay in a hotel or something during the production season? Our production tries to hire as many locals as possible. Uh-huh. So we have. Um, Just a handful of them are yeah, local. Yeah, a handful are Mississippians. 
And then the rest are either from Louisiana. Uh, we have New one, Orleans has a big film. Yeah, sure, yeah, there's a big pool in New Orleans we pull from. Um, one of our camera guys is based out of Houston, but he went to school in Mississippi, so he has you know some good connections here, and that's how we got him. Our DP is from Mississippi, <clears throat> and uh, our director is from Los Angeles. So we have a big mashup of people. We have our producers are from Canada. We have, and this is crazy. Our casting producer is went home to Canada when uh-huh. we were out, and now she can't come back. Oh wow! So. She's working via Zoom from Canada as our casting producer. And, you know, we're finding ways to adapt. We're making it work. We've we've designed everything for the first block of houses, and it's going well. Yeah. We're doing it. (laughs) I feel like that's going to be so tough, too, just sort of – you guys are both such kind of warm people – and I feel like so much of the show is just sort of you sharing that affection <laughs> with the other people on camera, you know, just being able to hug them or pat them on the back or whatever. And just, yeah, yeah having to, having to keep that distance. I mean, change. I don't know how, yeah. I don't know how it's going to be. We're also not talking about it on the show. Yeah. So, but I think it's going to be, people will just understand. People yeah. will just know. But I think it's going to be fine. It's the weirdest thing. Our showrunner, Angie, who we've worked with for, um since the very beginning of five years and we were looking at probably we had a meeting a few weeks ago and she told us that her mom was really sick Mm -hmm. and like i'm a i'm a hugger i like to hug people and in that moment i could tell she she really needed a hug and i really wanted a hug but we were at work, and everyone's in masks. Yeah. Everyone's in masks. It's isol. It's listen. I can tell you that my grandmother passed away in May. Mm. It is a deeply isolating time yeah. to lose. Them. It is awful to lose somebody and not be able to hug and to hold right. your family members. Or it's hard. Yeah. Really hard. I'm it's sorry to hear that. Around. That's oh, that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Could you guys do a, a funeral or anything, or like how did how did that work? Yes, and you know what? It was better than any funeral could have been. Yeah. My, my parents planned to have a, a church funeral for my grandmother, and you know, invite family from Memphis, family from far away. Sure. And what we ended up having was um, an outdoor funeral just at the graveside, and it was only fifteen, twenty, maybe people of the most important closest friends and family only and it was the most gorgeous day imaginable yeah there was a breeze there were birds singing. it was such a beautiful day that now our daughter there's only two when she when it's a beautiful day she calls it mammal weather Aww. yeah so. yeah so it ended up being really really wonderful but yeah. it hurt you know at the time to think you can't honor somebody the way you wanted to yeah and, and I just I, I I've been thinking about that a lot, and you know my my mom works in healthcare, and I have a lot of family across the country that you know my my father in law is a doctor, and you know I have an aunt that's a nurse, like just a lot of people that are maybe not all attending right to COVID patients, but are in are in hospital environments all day, and just thinking like sort of being afraid of like if they get something and and pass during this time that like you know I can't I can't fly to go be with the family. I can't go to a funeral, you know, and so many families are going through that. It sounds like you had a, a really good experience with it. All things considered. Yeah, we were lucky, but yeah, it's it's a tough time. Um, I wanted to ask too, just sort of thinking about, you know, the news and stuff, uh, Aaron, you had posted, uh, on your Instagram, uh, maybe a week or two ago, uh, there was a, you had posted that picture of Mr. Rogers, uh, you know, kind of sharing the pool, uh, you know, washing his feet in a pool with, with a policeman, and then after that, you had shared kind of a direct message exchange that you had with a fan that sort of didn't feel like you were going far enough in, in speaking out against racism. And I thought it was a really beautiful exchange that you guys had back and forth of just sort of you not wanting to to sort of jump on the social media bandwagon and, and pointing out that Laurel is it's 60 percent black and, you know, your neighbors, the people you go to church with, like your whole community you're surrounded by people of color and just sort of not wanting to not wanting to grandstand that, I guess, and more just sort of living your life in a positive way and and sort of leading by example. 
Um, and again, I thought it was a really beautiful post, but there was also something that, that sort of stuck out to me. And, and when you posted it, you said, I think my heart is racing sharing this and just sort of, I, w- I wonder how you feel now, you know, a couple of weeks after sharing, like, do you regret opening up that personally or were, were your fans generally supportive? Like, was it, a, was it a good thing in the end to, to sort of speak your heart in that way? No, I don't regret it. Um, it, I think if we're going to be on social media, then let's share what we feel comfortable sharing and let's be honest about it too. And honestly, I'm just not comfortable doing a one size fits all message about anything. And certainly not something so personal. We have close friends who are African-American and I don't, I don't see acrimony in those friendships and and where we live personally. You know, I I saw on the news that day where cities were burning down, right? Yeah. And then I walked to work and it's business as usual. You know, there was, there was kindness. There was gentleness. There was no, no rioting, no protesting. And it made me think, I think that we're all a lot, closer to each other and have more in common than we do differences. And I just wanted to share that. Yeah. I think that, um, well, I work in TV and I know what the news is. They're trying to get ratings. Sure. And so you see the most sensationalized parts of what is happening. You don't see the meat and potatoes of it, which is the daily interactions at the post office, at the restaurant, at, you know, when you go to pay your bills. And that's what I think, that's where the rubber really meets the road. That's where you make a difference. If you want to make a difference in the world, that's where it happens. It doesn't happen on Instagram. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like Grant said, I mean, we have really close friends that are, you know, quote unquote, people of color. Uh, But like, I mean, I have an aunt who is Hispanic. I have, uh, cousins that are, you know, were born and raised in Venezuela. And my uncle, when he when he married her, he adopted them. And they're, you know, some of my favorite people in the world. Uh, and we have, you know, people who are Americans who are of Asian descent that so we're really close to. I mean, everybody, everybody suffers in some way because of their biological makeup. Yeah. Um, you know. And there's nothing you can do about that, and that will never be fair by any means. But like Aaron said, a one-size-fits-all just would never work for us on anything. So that's, yeah, I was very proud of the way of the way she handled it. Yeah, no, and I think just in, you know, I kind of quickly scrolled through some of the comments, and it felt like your fans were, by and large, very supportive, too, that— they they felt a lot of the way that you do as well. And it wasn't, you know, it, it is kind of scary to, to put yourself out there in a vulnerable way like that, or, you know, to, to really share what you're feeling. And especially when it feels like there's, there's, <laughs> there's a right way and a wrong way to do it in these moments for, you know, and I'm putting those right and wrong in air quotes, you know, it's, yeah, I think, I think that message. Oh, resonated there, with people. there was no response. There is no response that will satisfy everyone. Yeah. That was the thing that we were hearing from so many of our friends in the entertainment industry who felt pressured to post something, something. just anything. Yeah. And so they went along with the crowd and then started getting hate messages because it wasn't enough. Right. And it was like, you know, it will, it's never going to be enough. It's freaking social media. <laughs> right. it, it, like, it is by definition, not real. It right. is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it's not interactions and, you know, you're you're trying to address something that happened, you know, on a city street in America through a social media outlet where people post recipes and you know, I mean like it's not Yeah. It's not the same thing. It never will be. Ultimately for Den and I, we think the ba- the way we can best serve the world and our community is by doing things like helping African-Americans find a path to home ownership by partnering with other African-American families to do it yep. rather than posting something on social media 
that just uh, it, it it became been forgotten in two weeks. It just is noise. It's not doing right. It's just makes more noise. That's how it felt to us. So yeah, yeah, and it feels like it's just it's everyone. I think in this moment is trying to figure out their contribution and sort of how. Absolutely. how they make a positive impact. And and as you say, you guys are, you're doing it through just everyday interactions and just, you know, kind of being open and, and loving people. And it sort of brings me to the last thing I want to ask you about, and that's just sort of your, uh, I guess, how your faith uh, plays into the work that you do, whether it's, you know, the, the work that you're doing to support Laurel and, you know, the, the, the businesses you have there or through the TV show or just how do you see the, the role of faith in your work? It's, it's the most important thing in our lives. Both of, our, our, both of my parents are United Methodist ministers, and so I grew up like, I mean, it was as natural as breathing. Um, was, you know, faith was a part of our lives. You were on the path um, to being a minister, or, or you were a minister for a while, right? I was, I was a minister for, for 10 years, and actually, social media was a big part of why I got I, I reached a point where it felt like these kids were trying to live their lives on a social media platform that in I a had, different world. in a totally different world, a social media platform that I'd never even heard of. Yeah. And so, you know, how yeah, could I? Yeah. Like, we don't even know what that is. Yeah. And that was so critical to them and their approval and how they interacted with their friends. And Ben was just like, I feel like I don't even know how to minister to them effectively anymore. Hmm. I mean, the TV show, endorsement deals, speaking engagements, everything that we do, we pray about it. We talk to each other about it. We think like we, we try, like we actually, we're in the process of saying no to something that we initially said yes to. And the reason behind it was the it more commercialized and not the more we looked at it, the only thing about like, as far as the brand went was that we knew that we would make a lot of money off of it. Yeah. And it was sort of like, I don't want that to be the reason that I'm working with someone or something. It was going to not require a lot of work on our part. Um, so it wasn't going to be like, you know, this big burden on us, but I think that that was going to end up being a big burden on us. The fact that, you know, we, our names were peddling something that we didn't really know what it was. It was an American made product, which is something that we really are passionate about. Um, but it was sort of, it just didn't feel right. And the fact that the only thing that we could tell ourselves when we were trying to convince ourselves to keep doing it, you know, playing the whole devil's advocate and talking to each other about it, praying about it was, yeah, but this is a lot of money. Yeah. Like, that was hard. But the the bigger, I think, the bigger way our faith is connected to what we do, it's completely connected to what we do because we believe that belief in God and in Christ gives you this second chance at life, hmm. you know? And that's exactly what our show is, it is a depiction of how you can literally give something a second chance. It's about rebirth, and that's what we believe in. We believe that our faith should be a part of whatever you do. Do it do it your best and to God's glory, and we hope that that's what our show does. Even people who are not believers reach out to us regularly and tell us so that they know we're believers and they're not, but they really appreciate that our show does send that message of second chances and revival and rebirth. Yeah. That is what hometown is really about. Yeah, no, it's it's so important. You know, it's <laughs> just in, in, in sort of hearing you guys talk about that, you know, I would put myself in, in the non-believer category. I grew up very Catholic and, you know, followed that for a long time and then you know, kind of strayed from the church and I'm not really sure where I fall right now, but the one thing that kind of, I, I read this recently and it, it really kind of stood out to me. Uh, there was a movement here in New England called the Shakers. Do you guys know about that? Like they, they oh. made furniture. And so, yeah, but sort of, the, their furniture. yeah, they're, they're big kind of overriding. Not so much their beliefs. Yeah. Well, they, there was, there was some interesting belief, but the, the, the sort of overriding principle that stood out to me was just sort of that, that God's work is in everything that you do. And 
so you should strive for perfection in everything you do. And so they tried to figure out like how to be the most efficient at farming and just grow these perfect vegetables and get high yields out of it and how to build the perfect tables and the perfect chairs. And, you know, it was, they were simple, but they were elegant. It's what we were talking about before, I guess, of just proportions and stuff. And there, there was just something yeah. that stood out to me in that of just like, oh, you know, you can see God or perfection or, you know, the universe, whatever you want to call it in everything and if you if you live your life that way just thinking there's beauty in everything it, it ties together all this i guess too because there's beauty yeah. in other people I mean, and like treat everyone with respect right that's yeah. absolutely yeah that's so that's how i always tried to teach as a youth minister was like you know god is in everything and the way that i would do it like i would take these you know highly you know these secular songs that these bands had written that were you know they were more than like I, I don't know what was in their hearts, but more than likely weren't believers. Yeah. And you know, if they were great, if they weren't, it's none of my business. But I would play these songs for these kids and I would, you know, show them movies and I would say, you know, if you look for it and somebody recently told me to rewatch the this happened last night, I said, Go rewatch the Revenant and think about the gospel of Christ as you watch it. Hmm. And now it's like all I can think about is I want to go rewatch this movie and think about that. And because because I didn't. But, yeah, like you're saying, I mean, it's. As believers, there is beauty in everything. There is good in everything. And it may be very hard to find it, but that's what our job is. It's our job to find it. All right. Aaron and Ben Napier there. How much fun were they? It was a great talk. Go check out HGTV's Hometown. Season 5 of Hometown is scheduled to be in production later this month. We'll find out what ends up happening there. But look for look for the new season of Hometown on HGTV soon. And Aaron and Ben also wrote a book. They referenced it a little bit in the, in the interview. It's called Make Something Good Today. You can pick that up wherever you buy books. All right, so that is it for today. Thank you for tuning in. If you're looking for another interview kind of like this one, go listen to my interview with Nick Offerman. It's a lot of the same ground, but from a, from a different perspective. I think you'll enjoy it. I'll have a new show on Monday. I'll talk to you then. Stay safe.